Hello and welcome to Grubbing in the Filth. Flies. They're irritating, right? The only insect I can think of with a verb denoting the act through which we kill them. Nobody swats a grasshopper. Flies don't evoke much compassion in people. Perhaps more than any other animal, flies can be viewed simply as an aspect of the environment, an irritating presence in the air. When we think of flies, we think about the noise they make as they rattle against window panes. When we're children, we hear that flies eat by vomiting, and I remember the vivid mental picture I had as a child of a fly being sick of my food. A fly in the ointment, a small thing that spoils the whole. A fly on the wall, an observer characterised by being unnoticeable, apparently unimportant. Flies seem to exist within a contradiction. We view them as things not worthy of note, little flickers of almost nothing, but also as creatures whose very presence implies that all is not well. Death and rot and illness. A cultural link has been forged between flies and the devil by way of Beelzebub, the lord of the flies. Beelzebub appears in the Bible as a false god, but has become either synonymous with Satan himself or seen as a demon prince, a figure of high standing within hell. This is not a biblical podcast, so I'm not going to get into theology. However we understand Beelzebub, the fact remains that a strong cultural connection exists between flies and Satan, death and evil. I would argue that for flies, being often drawn to feculence and decay, Cultural condemnation was inevitable, and we certainly can't blame Beelzebub for their low standing. Their lifestyles don't predispose people, en masse, to fly fandom. So now, having mentioned vomit and Satan in the first few moments of the podcast, let's now look past the challenging aspects of human-fly relationships. Death and Satan and all that. What can we learn about flies? Insects, specialised to their individual lifestyles, vital members of varied ecosystems. I was incredibly lucky to have the chance to speak with Charlotte Alberts, an entomologist at University of California, Davis. Charlotte speaks with passion and enthusiasm about flies, which is something that not many people can do convincingly. Specifically, her interest lies with assassin flies, the Acillidae, and it's on these incredible predators that we'll primarily focus. I hope the word assassin has got your attention. Immediately, violence is on the cards. We'll get into it. Hi, Charlotte. Hello. Hey. Um... I wanted to ask you some questions about flies, if that's all right. Of course. Yeah, go ahead. Lovely. Thank you. Um, I guess, first of all, what is your what is your interest in flies and what is your kind of professional relationship with, with insects? Um, well, I am currently uh, trying to acquire a PhD in entomology at the University of California, Davis. Um, I have always wanted to be an entomologist. I mean, for as long as I can remember, I think I was in maybe third grade when I kind of knew at first I wanted to be an entomologist. Um, I toggled between wanting to be an entomologist versus arachnologist. Um, I think in fifth grade, I wanted to be an arachnologist. Anyways, um, I uh, started studying flies in um, college and actually, they were assassin flies uh, that I were I started studying, and I totally fell in love with them. Um, and through studying assassin flies, I really, you know, fell in love with other flies as well. But I'm still a specialist in assassin flies today, um, and that's what my research focuses on: are the assassin flies and their relatives. So I was going to ask you about that. I was going to ask you. You have a a particular speciality in assassin flies. Do you want me to call them assassin flies or robber flies? 
Um, either is fine. I call them assassin flies just because I think it's, um, I don't know, a little bit more fitting. They more assassinate other insects rather than rob other insects. Um, so I just think it's a little bit more fitting, but definitely the term robber flies is used a lot more commonly. Um, but a few experts are trying to kind of shift that to assassin flies eventually. We'll see if that well, works. Let's go with assassin flies because I've been quite unsuccessful in trying to enunciate robber flies. So let's go assassin. Does your specialism in assassin flies there, because flies are so kind of every day, in gnats and mosquitoes and things, does having that specialism make you dismissive towards other fly species? Oh, definitely not. Um, I mean, I'm I'm interested in all insects. Um, I know a lot more about fr- flies, um, and then I know a lot about assassin flies. But I'm still interested in all insects and in particular fr- flies. Oh my gosh, I keep saying flies, <laughs> flies. Um, because they're, they're, I mean, related to assassin flies. And so I'm a systemicist and I am interested in the relationships. Um, so they're a part of that. <laughs> well, let me ask about that then. So as a system, systemicist, we're, we're both struggling with our words. As a systemicist, an assassin fly is a, a true fly. It is a, as opposed yes. to a butterfly or a dragonfly or a Correct. damselfly. Yep. It's, it is it is a thing called a fly, which isn't a general term. So what is it that what is it that defines a fly? Yeah, so they are different um, orders. And so like the butterflies and moths are part of Lepidoptera. The true flies are all diptera. Um, and if you actually break apart the word diptera uh, to its Latin roots, um, di is two and Optera is wing. So um, diptera means um, two wings. And that's kind of one of the biggest distinguishing factors of a fly as opposed to like a butterfly or a um, damselfly or something like that. Um, It has its hind wings reduced to something called a haltier. And the haltier is like a kind of a gyroscope almost. It's like a like a ball on a rod uh, behind the wing that counteracts the fl- uh, the flapping wings. Um, so when the wings are up, the haltiers are down. Um, and it kind of it acts as a stabilizer for the fly. And that's why they're like super fast and good at making corners and that kind of stuff, um, because they have two wings versus four. Right, I see. So yeah. then within, within the flies then, so you've got various different types of flies, what is it that yeah. defines an assassin fly within those? Yeah, so um, an assassin fly, kind of their defining features are they have piercing, sucking mouth parts. Um, their mouth parts have um, kind of like a hypodermic needle-esque part um, that they actually inject venom into their prey to both paralyze them and start pre-digestion. Um, mm. And then they suck up the, the parts um, of the insect they're eating. And then they also have um, a depression between their eyes. So they have these two huge compound eyes. And then they have um, three ocelli, which are like simple eyes um, in the middle of the face, kind of on the top. And then they have this depression in between the eyes that kind of make them look like they have 
I don't know, binoculars for eyes or something. Whereas a lot of other flies, um, it kind of their head goes straight across from eye to eye. Yeah, those are kind of the easiest ones. Um, they also have like a beard, like a characteristic beard. Right. I saw the beard. It's almost like it reminded me of um, like a walrus mustache almost. So they have these bushy faces almost, right? Yeah, yeah, they have. um, So there's actually some variety in the beards. Um, Most have them. Um, And they go anywhere from like a full beard to actually a mustache, like a short little uh, hairy thing that looks exactly like a mustache. Mm. Um, And it's called a mystex is what the beard is called, um, which oddly enough sounds like mustache. We're not really sure why they have it, um, and it's so extreme in assassin flies. But the kind of the leading theory right now is it protects their face from struggling prey. Okay, yeah, because they they are. I guess I I don't know how common predation of that type is amongst the flies, but that would it would make sense. It's a kind of a buffer between it and whatever it's feeding on, right? Yeah, yeah. So there are a few. Um, predaceous flies, other families that have predators. Um, but the assassin flies are definitely the most successful, meaning they have the most uh, species and the most kind of diversity um, for the predators. They're all predaceous, and that's both at the larval and um, adult phases um, that they're predaceous. In this episode, we're not covering every type of fly, but you can use the specialized lifestyle of the assassin fly to reflect briefly on the degrees of specialization that exist in other fly families. You're aware, I'm sure, of houseflies, like bluebottles, gnats and midges, mosquitoes. You've heard of hoverflies, perhaps craneflies, the dangle-legged insects, which to me are daddy long legs, fruit flies, flesh flies, dung flies, soldier flies. The diptera are incredibly varied. Each of these families I've mentioned, and I've only mentioned a few of the more well-known families, each of these families, and I've mentioned only a few of the more well-known families, each one, we could talk about in equal detail to the assassin fly, and the people who have dedicated years of their lives to uncovering the incredible, intricate lives they lead, and the relationships they forge with the world around them. I was reading up on assassin flies in advance of speaking to you, and one thing that kind of that I, I learned, or I may be wrong, is that they are quite closely related to bee flies. Yep. Which is sort of those charming little fuzzy yeah, flies. Yeah, they're really cute. Yeah, <laughs> um, And I wondered... So this would imply that they share a common ancestor, right, at some point. How is it as a systemicist, as someone who works on the taxonomy of flies, how do you uncover that relationship in the first place? How do you how do you understand the relationships between species? What are you looking for? So that's a very complicated question right. <laughs> um, on many different levels. Um, so like the first thing that always comes to mind um, and I'm pretty much asked all the time is what is, what are species? Um, and what is the definition of a species? Because there are actually many, many different versions of, uh, like what is a species, many different definitions. Yeah. And then there are also certain like criteria that, um, you have to know about the different species to be able to bring evidence to the fact that they're actually different species. Um, so even, at that level, it's a very difficult thing to distinguish. Uh, traditionally, uh, kind of morpho species were the focus. So you basically sit down with a whole bunch of individual flies and you separate them into what looks like what. 
um, and you distinguish completely add your, uh, like whatever you come up with is your system for like, oh, this is enough diver- or difference between these two specimens to be a different species kind of thing. But I mean, now it's a little bit more like you're trying to back it up with as many lines of evidence for separate species as possible. Um, so whether that's uh, morphology, uh, genetic materials, a lot of um, people are sequencing genes now um, and even whole genomes and figuring out how different they are from each other. But yeah, I mean, you can you can separate species by uh, biological concepts and ecological concepts. Maybe one hunts at night and one hunts during the day, but they look exactly the same. Um, but there's kind of that distinct difference. So extremely complicated, but as far as like uh, what I do, so the bomboleids, the bee flies, are supposedly the current hypothesis is that they're at the kind of the base at the bottom of the tree for the Isiloidea, which are the super family that include assassin flies. So assassin flies are Isilidae. And um, so they're, they're related. They're kind of, they evolved before assassin flies kind of thing. But there's, it's difficult because you, you base those kind of observations and uh, hypotheses of uh, their phylogeny on, you know, whatever criteria you're using. Most, t- mostly today, it's based off of, I would say, fossils, morphology, and uh, genes is are kind of the most common distinguishers. So it's a, d- a deeply complicated process, and presumably one that's kind of in flux, and people are changing, changing species definitions and changing Constantly, what kind of research yeah. going. And that's the thing about like science, right? It's there's very little like hard fact going on. A lot of it is a hypothesis and it's just known that like given the evidence that we have, this is our best estimate as to how these different flies are related and what their species are not. And, you know, 10 years from now, there might be better technology out there that will be able to give us a more accurate uh, kind of way to assume certain relationships. <laughs> The notion of what a species is is a curious thing. E.O. Wilson refers to the species as the fundamental unit through which we can understand the natural world. But in a way that can be quite odd to grasp, it's important to remember that a species is quite an abstract concept, based on lines that we have drawn, based on observations we have made. We gain an understanding of the world around us through organisation, by putting things in boxes, and we're able to organise through use of an ever-changing, ever-developing information base. So, as Charlotte says, the boundaries between species are being constantly redrawn. The family trees of flies, of insects, of animals more broadly, can be in flux as we adjust our categorization to reflect our understanding. We organise as best we can. At its most simple level, we consider a species as a group which is capable of interbreeding. A spider can't have babies with a fly, that much is clear. But then, within the spiders, within the flies, we can then look for further distinctions by which we can subdivide. So. Within the flies, the diptera, we can subdivide down. We can separate the flies into families. This is a helpful distinction we've drawn, because now we can make confident statements about, for example, the house flies, as opposed to the assassin flies. The assassin flies, the acillidae, will share characteristics and an evolutionary history, and so on. We can wave our hands over the assassin flies and say, all these go together. We can subdivide down again to the level of the genus, and then to the species. And we can point at a single species and say, this is a slender-striped assassin fly, Leptigaster cylindricus, 
and all slender striped assassin flies broadly look and act like this one. And then we can narrow it down to the level of the individual, and we can say this one's called Malcolm, and he behaves like this, or he's a better hunter than this one, and he's more likely to survive. In The Diversity of Life, Wilson illustrates the fiddly notion of what constitutes a species in reference to a fly. In 1895, he writes, a mosquito, Anopheles maculepinus, was discovered to be the species of mosquito responsible for carrying malaria. But then, the question was posed, why, in certain populations, did malaria appear to be non-existent, whilst in others it flourished? It was then in 1934 that a distinction was able to be made between these populations, establishing that what was thought of as a single species was in fact at least seven distinct species, only one of which was responsible for transmitting malaria. So let, let me ask about something a little bit more kind of, a bit more concrete then, which is uh, an assassin fly. What is its, I know that it's a hunter, a bit like a dragonfly almost. How are they, how are these flies hunting? Um, so they're, they're visual predators, very similar to dragonflies. And there are actually a few different um, species that kind of uh, are hunters in different ways. So I would say the majority of the hunters are the majority of the assassin flies are aerial hunters um, and they'll basically sit on a perch and be observing the, the environment around them and they'll see prey um, and fly out and intercept them and uh, inject them with the paralytic enzymes and then bring them back to the perch that they were on previously and then eat them. Um, that's how most of them do it. However, there are a few uh, species that actually um, kind of do a more searching approach. They'll they'll like fly around and land very little, and um, go and hover in front of spider webs even and pick a spider off of a spider web. Or maybe there's some that will uh, hunt grounded prey like beetles or something. Um, so there's a lot of diversity in their hunting strategies, but the more, majority of them are aerial predators. So then what was it that brought you to studying rubber flies specifically? Assassin flies. <laughs> um, so I, I was in college. Um, I had a very kind uh, professor and mentor who basically took me under his wing. Um, I was always passionate about entomology and my school did not offer entomology as like a focus or a degree. Um, but his son was actually an entomologist studying assassin flies. And um, he wanted to um, basically give me the support I needed to pursue entomology a little bit more seriously. And um, we developed together a research project for the summer and a proposal, and I got accepted. So I got to spend the summer at um, St. Lawrence University um, doing a SLU fellowship and studying assassin flies. And that's when I like really fell in love with them was when I got to study them in the field. Um, and, you know, it, it all, I mean, I, I've been studying them ever since. <laughs> so if I, I mean, I'm not an entomologist, I'm, I'm, I like insects, I like invertebrates, I'm enthusiastic about them, but I'm not, I have no professional relationship with them. If I wanted to, if I want to see an assassin fly, and we, we have them in the UK, but if I want to see an assassin fly, is there a way that I seek them out? Am I likely to see them in certain places? Yeah, um, so they there are over 7,500 species found worldwide. Um, so kind of needless to say, there is a ton of diversity in both what they look like 
and also where you would find them. Um, so they're actually kind of everywhere. I mean, it's it's it needs to be warm enough um, for them, and it also needs to be not too cold. Or uh, wow, that was redundant. Um, it needs to be warm enough for them, but also not too hot. Um, so an ideal temperature, but obviously there's even variation in that. Some species like to be in the desert and some like to be in cooler climates. Um, but in general, like if you were to step outside your house, um, I would be looking at, um, kind of areas that they would be hunting from because they are easiest to spot when they are either in flight or perching and hunting. Um, so they like to sit on twigs and leaves and they can be like on a tree that's you know at eye level or they can be perching from the ground um and even like on the the um, trunk of a tree sometimes um those are kind of the most obvious places and then some um that i really like like the lafrini um they all like to sit and perch on dead logs specifically. So like if you go into the woods and you see kind of a sunlit dead log on the ground, there might be a a assassin fly um, perched on it and hunting from it because that's, that's where they lay their eggs. So they're by no means uncommon. Yeah, no, no, they're, they're all over the place. They're everywhere. Um, But definitely they like, they like sunshine and they like warmth. Um, my friends always make fun of me because I have a very easy like group that I study because they don't typically come out before 10 a.m. So I, I get to sleep in every day. Oh, lovely. <laughs> Perfect. I was going to ask you about how um, how like other people react to to you being a fly specialist, because I think, you know, there are some species of insects that, you know, if you, if you said you were a dragonfly specialist or a butterfly specialist, there's a certain kind of romance to it almost. Yeah. I spoke to a cockroach expert recently and he, he basically said the reason he chose to study cockroaches is, you know, sort of out of defiance. And <laughs> I love it. Like, because no one likes them, that's what he yeah. might have gone for. But, and, yeah. and flies, they're, they're sort of on the list of insects that people aren't fond of. They're pretty, people are dismissive of them. People don't like them. I wondered... Mm-hmm. Do you have a kind of a way that you try and win people over to to flies or is that, is it too far gone now? (laughs) Um, I actually absolutely love studying flies. And one of the reasons I do love studying them so much is because there is the stigma against them. Um, I, I meet countless people who find out that I study flies and they're like, ew, yuck, why would you Mm. study that? Um, So exactly what you're saying. And it gives me the opportunity to, you know, maybe change their perception a little bit. And um, one of the ways I do that is obviously sharing a lot about how interesting the fly world is. I don't think people understand how important flies are um, to the world and humans, um, but also how beautiful they can be. how diverse. I mean, most people have no idea that there's, you know, an extremely prominent predatory assassin fly with venom. Like when Mm. I tell people that their minds are blown, um, or if I tell them that, you know, if you love chocolate, well, you are, you only have chocolate because of a fly. It's solely pollinated by flies. 
Um, right. Yeah. So, but I mean, it's pretty good to win over people with the chocolate argument. Um, but really my favorite thing to do is really talk to these people in person um, and do something as simple as just showing them a fly under a microscope. Um, because so many people, they just see kind of a, a black thing flying around. Um, but as soon as you put it under a microscope, it's amazing how complex and beautiful so many of these insects are. I mean, obviously there's some that are just drab gray and brown or whatever, but you can still find beauty in their intricate design and how, you know, just perfect they are. <laughs> um, yeah. they're, they're incredible. And so I, I love blowing people's minds by simply just, you know, showing them a little bit more of the macro world. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I feel like that's kind of, that's one of the things I like about learning about insects is the fact that they are in our lives already. Like, it's not like if you're interested in gorillas, you've got to go out and seek a gorilla, which is a difficult thing to do. Yeah. But flies and beetles and things, they're just, they've always been there around us. And it's when you they're choose everywhere. to, when you choose to pay attention to them, you, you can learn about this bizarre world that you knew nothing about, but that was always under your nose. In yeah. Fact, I wondered, yeah. you know, given that, given how everyday flies are, given that, you know, you might, you know, I was out last night and there was just fruit flies knocking about or maybe a, a blue bottle comes in your house or something. Yeah. Does being a, an expert in flies, does it kind of color your experience of the world? Does it, when flies arrive in your life, is that a cause for celebration or are they? It depends, it depends on the flies and sure. the mood I'm in and the <laughs> headspace I'm in. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm pretty much entertained by everything. So I'm, I'm a little bit <laughs> right. special that way. Um, I, I find that, my love of insects has really opened the world up to me. And that even though something might be small or insignificant, um, I can still find beauty in, in it. Um, and I mean, yeah, I'm going to swat a mosquito if it bites me, um, that kind of thing. But also I might look at it under a microscope and be like, Oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> um, and, and it definitely, I mean, I think before I swat, um, but I mean, there's also, you know, there, there are diseases that can be spread. There are, you know, nuisance things going on. I'm not going to, you know, keep around drain flies or have blue bottle flies landing on my food. Um, but I also, you know, give them maybe the respect that I feel that they deserve with just chewing them away or catching them and putting out them outside. Um, I really don't like killing flies. Um, and I've always been that way. My third grade teacher reached out to me not too long ago. And she's like, I always knew you were going to be an entomologist. She's like, you started yelling at a boy when he squashed a fly. <laughs> I think, I think it's horrible that kids, um, kids are kind of used to, there's no other kind of animal where it's normal for a child just to destroy it. You know, yeah. you wouldn't go to the park and try and kill the squirrels. It's a bizarre thing to do. But kids learn yeah. that it's okay to to smash wood lice and spiders and things. And it's it seems awfully mean-spirited. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's definitely something that I, it does seem mean-spirited. Um, but at the same time, it, they, we've had a, humans have had an interesting and difficult relationship with insects. And I mm. think it's, 
you can't just say you're a bad person for, you know, not respecting this animal enough to pause um, because they have given killed a lot of people and like it caused a lot of things i mean not all of them it's typically a very select species that does these damages and stuff um but there there are reasons why humans have evolved to kind of hate them and our culture has evolved to kind of hate them um but you don't need to hate all of them and you also like um people need to be more educated in how important they are um, and thank goodness that insects have the reproductive rate that we also de- despise at the same time. Because yeah. if you do accidentally kill a fly or or step on a spider when you're out for a walk or something like that, I mean, they're, you're not going to hurt the population necessarily. There are very few instances where there's such a small population that if you kill a couple, you're actually, you know decimating a whole species um that doesn't happen very often um there i mean insects are absolutely everywhere so it's impossible not to kill them even if you're very vigilant and i mean as you say you know it's 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 a sobering thought but you know all around the world insects are you know put people through terrible things and yeah so yeah i I understand why people loathe them and, and often for good reason yeah, but they should That's, also love them because, I mean, they they have countless ways that they help us. And so my, my job is not to tell them, no, you're wrong in hating them, but also, you know, with that hate, maybe have some love for them too. An appreciation, at least, for what they do for us. Yeah. Um, they're, not, they're not malicious yeah. creatures, are they? They're not out to get them. No, they're just doing yeah. their thing. Yeah. Let's take a, a hard left-hand turn into... Um, cool. I was going to ask, I should have asked earlier, really, about how much we know on what life is like for a, for a, a larval robber fly, assassin fly, a larval <laughs> assassin fly. Um, yeah. So there's not actually a ton known. Um, right. Like watching a, a larval assassin fly isn't really a thing. Um, <laughs> there are people who can successfully rear um, larvae. Um, and, and they'll become adults, uh, but actually observing a a small creature that is basically moving its way through sand or, um, some dead wood or something like that is very difficult. So we don't really know what they do besides eating. They, we know that they're predators. We know that they, um, kill other insects, um, and mostly other insect larvae that's also in the same environment that they're in. but beyond that, I'm honestly, I don't think we know much. That's quite exciting though, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's nice to have something new to learn about and gaps in our knowledge, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And they're definitely, I think, uh, scientists who are trying to pursue that and kind of learn a little bit more. I'm not one of them currently, but it's mm. definitely intriguing to me. Sure. Do you fancy some, some quick firefly questions? Of course. Yeah, I can I can try my best. Sure. Um Joe wants to know how many are there? How many flies? Yeah. Whoa. Quite a hard question to answer, I guess. <laughs> I don't think I presume he doesn't mean individuals. Cause that would be That would be absurd. You're unlikely um, to know. Okay, so 
You know, I'm actually not entirely positive. My my um I believe it's around a hundred thousand species. Right. Um yeah. So assassin flies are the third largest fly family with seven thousand oh, wow. five hundred. Um, and then uh, tapelids, like crane flies, are the largest. And they, I think they have over 10,000, I believe. Um, That's really surprising. I mean, maybe it's not to an expert, but I would, because of my sort of homebound bias, I would have assumed that like house flies were right up there. No, but, yeah, it's crane flies, as silly as that right. is. <laughs> Does that include a, a mosquito as a kind of crane fly? No, mosquitoes are their own thing. <laughs> They're their own thing. Okay. Well, good job. Um, yeah. My dad wants to know, um, in evolutionary terms, how old are flies? Oh, mm, you know, I don't know this and I probably should. Well, then he'll have to <laughs> get off his ass and find out himself. And I think that's absolutely fine. <laughs> I could do a quick Google search. <laughs> he can do it himself. He's fine. Oh. I thought it would be worth asking before we say goodbye to Charlotte about flies in the home. Yeah. I mean, cluster flies happen in most everyone's houses. Um, basically, they're just, they come out at certain times of the year. Sometimes it's a potted plant in your house that, you know, a fly has come in and laid a bunch of eggs and they are released. Um, but other times, I mean, you can have other types of flies. So there's these little flies called moth flies or drain flies. Um, that are super cute and fluffy, um, but like they're they're around when your drains are dirty, um, so they're kind of an indicator species. So like they're they're different flies, and you can kind of tell what issue you might be having depending on what species of fly you have. Um, so like if you have blue bottle flies, like there might be something dead around. Um, right. <laughs> Yeah, flies can get into anywhere. So, I mean, one of the coolest things with flies that people do is um, like forensic anthropology, um, right? Where you where you estimate time of death and all these things from fly larvae um, because they're super consistent. And why it's uh, forensic entomology is so helpful is because flies can literally get into everything. Like you bury a body six feet down under the ground in a casket covered with a stone, whatever, like you, you put layer upon layer layer in there. You put like chemicals and on them and you'll still get flies. Like there's no, (laughs) there's no end to their creativity in getting to something dead. Right. Um, Fair play to them. Yeah. So people who try to keep flies out of their house, um, good luck with that. Um, (laughs) I mean, some are better than others. Keep your place clean. Um, But yeah, flies are going to find a way no matter what. And that's just kind of how it is. Our dog eats our flies. So we don't really see flies in our house. Oh, that's (laughs) nice. With the whole dead bodies thing, which is charming. Like, yeah, this is always confused me about the fact that insects turn up when there's like rotten food or when there's decay yeah. in, in sort of dirty homes and stuff. And I always wonder how they know. Yeah. It's mostly by smell. Right. Um, yeah. So they're able to smell basically 
what they're attracted to. Um, and they're typically attracted to food sources and also oviposition sites. So somewhere that they can lay an egg um, to make babies. Um, so whatever the food would be for their babies kind of thing. Got you. But yeah, smell it out. They smell it. Okay, well, thank you so much for talking to me. I guess what's uh, oh. what's what's in the pipeline in terms of assassin fly research at the moment? For me? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so honestly, it's uh, kind of up in the air right now with COVID. Um, yeah, I'm well, not allowed in the labs currently. So my my one of the main chapters for my dissertation is completely on hold. Um, and that was going to be a UCE, which are ultra conserved elements, uh, phylogeny of Aciloidea. So that super family that encompasses bee flies and assassin flies. Um, but I'm also doing a chapter on um, basically gene level tree. So just a few uh, genes for uh, assassin fly species and um, kind of taking a narrower look at that family. Um, and then I'm also describing a new species of uh, Serapogon, which is a genus of assassin fly. And yeah, I have a also a, a predator prey analysis that I'm doing. So basically seeing if there's generalized and specialized feeding within the assassin flies and if it there's any phylogenetic signal within that. Um, but I'm I'm basically working with my committee right now to figure out, okay, this is the data I have. I want to graduate soon. And um, what what can I make out of this that uh, will, you know, be good enough for a PhD because my, my big, beautiful, <laughs> uh, dissertation plans are going up in flames with COVID. <laughs> yeah. So. It's, it's, it's tough, isn't it? Well, <laughs> I hope really that tough. it's, I hope that it works out and that you're able yeah. to learn and discover many, many more things about these wonderful flies. Yeah, me too. I mean, I'm, I hope to work on them for a long time. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for speaking to me. I'm really grateful that Charlotte was able in this episode to discuss the difficulties that we have with flies and with our relationship with flies. We easily could have glossed over it in favour of blindly singing the praises of flies. I think it's easy as an enthusiast of invertebrates to obsess over the idea that invertebrates have lost some kind of culture war and are basically lovely if you give them the time. Whilst it's true that no fly owes any ill will to a person, it'd be ignorant to lose sight of the fact that flies have caused significant suffering in the world. That doesn't make them less interesting or less worthy of study, quite the opposite in fact. However, it pays to remember that in our relationship with the natural world, we're not playing the part of an observer, we are part of it and it affects us as we affect it. You can be a fan, in inverted commas, of flies, but you need to acknowledge the reality of them, as animals, as living things whose lives intersect with our own. I could easily fall into the trap of presenting these animals the way another podcast might present an underrated film. But they're not entertainment. They're fascinating. It enriches your world to realise how compelling the smallest life can be. But for many, they're appalling, and they've caused a great deal of pain. As decomposers, as pollinators, flies play roles which we appreciate. Roles that are essential. And perhaps we do well to remember that, and the importance that flies have within ecosystems all around the world. The fact is, the world would look very, very different without flies, and I'm confident it wouldn't be an improvement. So yes, flies, buzzing irritants, 
Beelzebub's myths, but so much more. My thanks again to Charlotte for sharing her expertise and giving us a glimpse into the world of the flies and the assassin flies more specifically. This tremendous order of insects is full of captivating stories, unbelievable characters. Behind each buzz, within each swarm, these stories are unfolding. Drubbing in the Filth was written and produced by me, Tom Sharp, with music by Will Hatton. If you want to get in touch, please do contact grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com or look up Grubbing in the Filth on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, don't forget to swivel your head using your vast compound eyes to scan for unsuspecting prey, which you'll hold fast and begin to digest with your venomous saliva. Bye.